With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before sunrise on a mild summer morning in June 1995. A 27-year-old television news anchor named Jody Husentrout hurriedly left her apartment in Mason City, Iowa, headed for work. But she never arrived, and her disappearance has never been solved. In 2003, two television news reporters created FindJody.com, a website dedicated to preserving Jody's memory and keeping her case alive. This is the official Finds Jody podcast. Welcome back to the Finds Jody podcast. I'm Scott Fuller. What kind of person would have abducted and likely murdered TV news anchor Jody Husentrout on the morning of June 27, 1995? As you likely know from the television and movies, there's an entire segment of the FBI dedicated to answering questions like that. The Behavioral Analysis Unit, or BAU, contains agents who are certified criminal profilers. Their role is to provide investigators all over the country a resource to determine who an offender might be in the abstract. They do this through analyzing crime scenes, victims, and other factors to point police investigators working these cases in the right direction to identify unknown violent criminals. On this bonus episode of the Fine Jody podcast, Caroline Lowe and I spoke to a retired certified FBI profiler named Julia Cowley, who worked for the FBI for 22 years and worked at the BAU from 2009 until her retirement last year. If you want to learn more about profiling and Julia's analysis of Jody's case using public information, you'll want to listen to episode 31 of this podcast. But here in this bonus episode, Julia discusses one of the major cases she worked in her career. From 1973 to 1986 in California, an unknown rapist and murderer was terrorizing the northern part of the state. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was arrested in 2016, having been identified as the so-called Golden State Killer. D'Angelo committed at least 13 murders, 50 rapes, and 120 burglaries. He was uncaught for decades until being arrested at his home. In 2020, D'Angelo was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. One of the FBI profilers who worked on this case was Julia Cowley. Last year, in May of 2021, I retired after 22 years with the FBI And during my career with the FBI, I I began in 1999. I was assigned to the Boston Division of the FBI, and I was assigned to a white-collar crime squad, and I worked there for a couple of years. And then I went to a public corruption civil rights squad, and I worked there for a number of years. And I was also a member and a team leader on the evidence response team, So um, following that, 
in at the end of 2009, I was selected. I applied for and was selected to the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, and I was assigned to the Crimes Against Adults Unit, which is the unit that I wanted to be in. And I went through the training, became a certified profiler. And then in 2014, I came back up to Massachusetts and became the supervisor of an office out of the Boston Division in Springfield, Massachusetts. So I supervised the criminal squad um, for my last several years in the FBI. And also on occasion had a chance to help the state and local police on some cases up here during my time. And uh, when I was at BAU, I had the opportunity to work on some big cases, which it was fortunate because I was fairly new at the time. So I got to work on the uh, Golden State Killer case. And we now know that that offender, his name is Joe D'Angelo. And he was um, arrested in 2018 and pled guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder in 2020, in June of 2020. So that was a case that um, I had involvement. I was the lead profiler on that case. And I think an important part of my background as well is that prior to joining the FBI, I was a special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, which is In addition to behavioral analysis, forensic science is also my other passion. And my, I think my first one true passion was forensic science. So that's how I started out working in a crime lab. And um, I would, I was also a member of the um, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation's violent crime response team. So in that role, I would go to homicide scenes with a team of people and we would process those scenes. So I felt like my experience at TBI uh, worked really well for me, not only when I joined the FBI's evidence response team, but also really helped when I joined the behavioral analysis unit because I think one of the strengths that I brought to the unit was my ability to sort of um, provide a better understanding of the crime scene dynamics when we look at some of these cases and kind of piece back together what happened between the offender and the victim. And that's usually where I start is I look, okay, what happened here? What do we know? What can we determine from the crime scene, from the evidence that's been left behind? What was the interaction here? So in summary, that's that's my background. And like I said, I retired last May, so it hasn't even been a year yet. And your last big case, not long before you retired, was the Golden State Killer. I mean, you ended on a one of the most well-known, infamous cases in our country. That's kind of interesting because when, one of the things when you are working as a profiler, you don't really get involved in the investigation itself. Like, I'm not responsible for conducting interviews or processing the crime scene anymore. I don't conduct surveillance. So once you review the files and provide an analysis, 
it's really not your investigation. So I don't really become involved in it. So you you provide that and the police departments and we don't take over the investigation. I think that can be a little bit of a myth that the FBI comes in and we take over everything. In this case, that's not what happens at all. We're, we're merely consultants. We provide an analysis and the detectives and the investigating agencies, they can decide you know, what they find useful, what they don't. They don't have to listen to a word we say. So in terms of when he was arrested and interviewed and convicted, I, I really didn't have a role in that. I watched from afar and I, I talked to several of the investigators that um, I worked with when I was consulting on the case. So I, I did get a lot of great inside information. But in terms of being part of the investigation at that point, I was no longer a part and I had to watch from afar. But it was it was great. It was really great to see that the science caught up to him and he was caught and he was held accountable for what he did. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you share with our listeners some of the key parts of your role in that case and specifically what you identified, what came out to be true in terms of his background and some things that you were surprised by what you learned after they identified Joe D'Angelo? The uh, FBI out in the Sacramento division, along with the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office, had requested assistance from the Behavioral Analysis Unit. And this is, I think this was back in 2011. I don't know if they knew exactly what they were looking for, but I think one of the main things is they wanted a profile of an unknown offender and they wanted linkage analysis because in addition to the attacks that were happening in the Sacramento area at the time, and this is between 1976 and 1979, that Joe D'Angelo was breaking into homes at night and ransacking the homes and sexually assaulting female victims. And he started to enter homes at night when there was also a male victim present and he would sexually assault the female victims in the presence of the male victims in a different room, but in the same location, the same residence. Between 1974 and 1976, there was a series of ransackings in Visalia, California, which is about four hours from Sacramento. These ransackings were happening during the day and somebody was going into the house and ransacking the home and stealing items, uh, some items of value and some items weren't of value, but also doing some strange things like going through, you know, lingerie drawers. And in one case, he poured orange juice on a bed and he would move things around the, the homes you know, it was a series of over a hundred of these residential burglaries between 1974 and 1976. But in the midst of that, the offender they believed to be the Visalia ransacker, which was what his moniker was, 
had gone into a home and attempted to kidnap a 16-year-old girl. And as he was trying to take her out of the house, her father confronted him and the offender shot and killed him. And his name was Claude Snelling, and he was a professor at a local university. This became much more serious. It wasn't just nuisance, somebody breaking into homes and ransacking. It became, there was a murder. So one of the things that I thought was really important was to answer, was the Visalia ransacker also the East Area Rapist? Or, you know, as we know now, we call him the Golden State Killer. Were these this, was this the same offender? And there was a real divide amongst the investigators. You had some that said, absolutely not. It's not the same offender. And that in large part had to do with very differing descriptions of the offender. Um, and then you had the other side that would say, no, these have to be linked. It's the, the timing of it and the ransacking and and the fact that the Visalia ransackings seemed to stop when the East Area rapes began. So I thought that was one of the questions I also needed to answer, you know, provide a linkage to this. And, and the trouble with the Visalia cases is that there was no DNA. So without the linkage, it was very unlikely to have been solved. But in terms of the East Area rapes, there, you know, he committed between 1976 to 1979, about 50 or so rapes. I looked at 45 in terms of the entire investigations. I reviewed 45 cases out of Sacramento and Northern California. And then in 1979, there were attacks that occurred in Southern California, and ultimately the offender escalated to homicide, killing his victims. And there were um, a, a total of 12 victims that he killed. And these cases were not linked until approximately 2001 when the sexual assaults, well, at least a couple of the sexual assaults were linked to a few of the homicides in Southern California by DNA. So that that's how they found out, okay, we have one offender and he became known as East Area Rapist slash Original Night Stalker. So I, I called him Eurons, and a lot of investigators just shortened it to that, Eurons. And that's how I knew him until, until he was dubbed the Golden State Killer by a true crime author named Michelle McNamara. So compelling to make you see a linkage that maybe some others didn't see, because typically burglars don't fit aren't killers. And what did you see that made you think that maybe it was the same person? Typically they aren't. And how, well, actually I should say, typically we don't think that a burglar is going to escalate to becoming a killer. And I think that's the view that many detectives had. I mean, you don't just go from this to, you know, raping to murder. It just didn't seem plausible to many of the detectives, but what I saw in the scenes in Visalia is, number one, there, there seemed to be like a sexual component to the ransackings, you know, looking at women's underwear. And he would display underwear. He would lay them on the bed or he'd, in one case, he t- took female lingerie and, and placed it all the way down the hall of the homes. The other thing that he did was he made 
makeshift alarms. So in the ransackings, he would place a fragile object of some sort on a doorknob so that if someone came home, the object would fall and he would hear and he'd be able to escape. Well, he engaged in similar behavior in Sacramento when he would tie up the victims. He particularly the male victims, he placed fragile objects such as cups and saucers on their backs and he threatened them and say, if you move or make a sound, these are going to fall and I'm going to hear and I'm going to come back and kill you. So I thought that was a unique trait, a unique characteristic. The other thing was just the intensity of the ransacking and you know not only with the sexual component to it, but the intensity of it. And then the thing I started noticing in the Sacramento cases. And it was kind of, I don't want to say funny, but as I was going through them, I I don't know how many I'd gotten through. I I was probably maybe on, you know, between 10 and 15. And it finally hit me. It's like, wait a second, he does not commit a sexual assault until after he's ransacked the house. And so I started over again. I started the case. Let me just double check this. Is he, he only ransacked or he ransacks before any sexual assault. And so I kept track of all the cases. And then I also noted that if a victim was assaulted more than one time in during the evening, because he spent several hours in the victim's homes, if he would ransack in between the assaults, I'm like, ransacking is a key component to him. This is where he gets his sense of control and power. This is really how he prepares for the sexual assault. And the other thing I noticed as well is that in terms of the reports in Visalia, they were they were really short because especially when it first started, because I don't think investigators realized what they were dealing with. Oh, we just have a, a residential burglary. Nobody was home. Nobody was hurt. It's, you know, probably just some kids. But there are a couple of incidents where it was noted in the report that that the offender had either brought lotion or accessed lotion while he was in the house. In one case, he poured lotion on the carpet down the hallway. In another case, they found fingerprints in lotion. I thought this was evidence he was masturbating at the scene. That just seemed odd that in a lot of these cases, there was a you know lotion being used in ransackings. So then... I looked at when I was looking at the East Area Rapes, one of the things that he did is he always used lotion as lubricant when he sexually assaulted the female victims. So I thought that was another tie to these ransackings have a real having a real sexual component to them. So these were the things I noticed. There's some other things I can't really recall off to the top of my head, but I, I became convinced this is the same individual. I was like 100% convinced. (laughs) But then, of course, somebody would point out, well, he doesn't look anything like the East Area Rapist. And then I'd start to doubt myself. And then I'd look at the behavior again. And I'd say, but the behavior is there. I think it's the same person. So that's kind of how I linked the cases together. And of course, when I say I, I want to, I mean, I was the lead on this and I did the review of everything, but 
people in my unit also reviewed it with me. I went over everything with them and and this was a group analysis. So I just want to point that out. (laughs) But, you know, when I first started, I was, you know, I'm, you know, as the lead person, you're the one that actually reads every file and looks at every crime scene photo and you present that to your colleagues and then you discuss it and come up with an analysis. So that's, that's the process of profiling. So I don't want to sound like, oh, I just came up with this all by myself um, because I, I certainly didn't do it all by myself. But these were the, th- the thoughts that I was having as I was reviewing the files. So in terms of linkage, that was important, the unknown offender profile. And then also, like, what can they do to catch him? Like, what kind of investigative suggestions can we offer, you know, being a former forensic scientist, I knew, okay, science is going to get him someday. He's going to get caught because he left forensic evidence at the scenes. And that's, that's what's going to get him caught. But can we do something, you know, to help identify potential suspects to take DNA from? Of course, this is back before they were doing or using the genetic genealogy. So the thing I just said, for the most part, is said, you know, you have DNA. This is probably your last chance to catch him. Release everything. Release all the information. Everything that he stole and, and provide real detail on these items. Maybe somebody saw it because he stole things like jewelry and he stole weapons and he stole, you know, some items that were of value. So put all that information out there as, as descriptive as you can be. Put out every comment he made, whether we believe those comments to be true. Like he claimed he was in the military and he claimed certain, you know, living in certain areas and traveling and having a van and stuff like that. So everything he claimed to be or or say to victims and the way that he said it, put all that out there because maybe somebody will recognize the language or maybe somebody will recognize, oh, I, I heard that phrase before. Put out his profile. We're not looking for, you know, I, I felt like he was portrayed, you know, he's, he's a very, very dangerous person, but I thought he was sort of misportrayed as being this brazen, bold, brave, confident guy when really what the analysis was telling me is that he's not confident. He's insecure. He's, he feels ineffective. And that's why he behaved the way he did, so over the top, taking control, wanting to possess people, wanting to possess other men's female companions right when they're in the home. Because a lot of people would think, well, he must be really brave if he's breaking into homes when there's another male present. I thought it was quite the opposite. And I thought everything that he portrayed to his victims and tried to be was just this false front you know, almost the ultimate overcompensation to who he really was. And so I thought putting out the profile and what we would expect him to be like in real everyday life, maybe somebody that would trigger uh, somebody to come forward and say, you know, this guy's kind of strange. And he, you know, and the other thing I thought was really important was the geography of these crimes and they're very specific areas. So put out 
the the dates and times of all the offenses and his location and really highlight where he was at specific times. Like these years he would have been in Sacramento. These years he had access to Northern California. These years he was down in Southern California and, and name all the, the towns and cities that he offended in. And maybe somebody will say, you know, he was here in Sacramento and then he moved here. So that was the investigative suggestions. It, it was really not, I mean, I, I just think it was kind of just like, just throw everything out there and see what happens. And they they made a, the FBI put out a, a video of some sort, a public service message with some of the information, but not all of the information. But ultimately what caught him was the forensic genetic genealogy. One of the things that you came up with, and I understand that some of the investigators did not agree with you at the time, is you thought it was likely that he was had been a police officer. Can you explain why, how you reached that conclusion? The reason why, so I thought he was likely at least trained in law enforcement and potentially a police officer because he's very tactical. He's very good at what he did. And, you know, for example, when he would first enter the homes, he'd wake his victims up by shining a flashlight, blinding them and shining a flashlight in their eyes. And that's a law enforcement tactic. And I thought, okay, that's kind of, you know, interesting. But the other thing that really made me think that he had some kind of potentially law enforcement training and firearms training is because he was very effective at using firearms. He, when he was confronted by a competent male and the, and he didn't have complete control. What he did is he escalated directly to deadly force and he shot and killed his victims. And he did this in almost every, every occasion where he was going to have to, you know, have a physical confrontation with another man. And he was very good at it. He was very, um, you know, he was a good shot. He, you know, he, he didn't miss. The only time he missed somebody was when he shot at a police officer in Visalia right before the, uh, right before he left and went up to Sacramento and he, he shot his flashlight. And just by the grace of God, he, the, the police officer survived. So I thought, okay, he's had some training in law enforcement and he was stealing weapons as well. He was stealing, um, weapons and guns out of home. So I'm like, this is somebody who's very familiar with firearms, very comfortable with firearms. He can escalate right to deadly force and he's very accurate and he kills his victims. So those things combined uh, as well as just his ability to escape and sort of seem to have this sense of where the police were where they were doing surveillance, where they weren't. I don't know if he had access uh, at the time to communications, but that led me to believe he might be a police officer. And And I don't think that anyone necessarily disagreed with the assessment. I think that there were some concerns that it was I was overstating it. Perhaps I should tone it down just a little bit. And so I, in my formal report, I said that he likely had some sort of formal firearms training in in some capacity. So, and and I was okay with that. I, I didn't think that that really made a difference. I mean, most of the detectives that I spoke with knew 
that I thought he might be a police officer. And there were several other detectives that also thought the same thing. And you were, you yeah. were correct. It turned out to be he had been a police officer. He had been. he had been and it during during the time he was offending in Visalia he, he had been a police officer in a, a town right close by in Exeter and then he went up and he was a police officer in Auburn which is in the Sacramento area and he was ultimately fired because he got caught shoplifting and it was really around this time which is interesting to look back and in hindsight around this time that he was down in Southern California and and things just sort of seemed to be going wrong for him. He's been fired from the police department. He had a couple of really near misses where victims, they got out of their bindings and he had to kill them immediately. And so things were just kind of all going wrong for him. And this is about the point in time where he escalated to, you know, the ultimate control over his victims by, by killing them in the end. So yeah, so th- that was um, that was really interesting to find out he really had been a police officer. I was, I think I was even surprised myself. I'm like, oh wow, <laughs> well that makes sense. Caroline, you had asked, you know, what was you know what we said and and what was right and and maybe what you know I can also kind of point out where I think I missed a bit. But in terms of you know, his, his personality traits and his characteristics. I mean, we really felt like this was a very insecure, ineffective individual who can't handle stress very well. And so when he was brought into court, he was in a wheelchair and he was perfectly fine. I mean, when he, they were, when the detectives prior to his arrest were doing surveillance, I guess he was out on a motorcycle and he was very physically fit and doing, you know, work around the house. And then, when he was arrested, he pretty much, I would say, just kind of imploded <laughs> and, you know, didn't communicate and almost seemed like he was um, not understanding what was going on around him. So when I saw him, I, you know, I, I wasn't surprised by that. I thought that was actually the truest version of Joe D'Angelo. That's that's the real him. That's what happens when he doesn't have com- complete control over everything. He can he can't handle it. You know, if you think about it, it, it seems like he had an extreme reaction to the arrest, and you know, not not willing to walk into court, and and appearing to be a very you know confused, old, decrepit man. That's you know, that's really who he is he's this very insecure individual and it's it's so bad that he compensated for that by taking complete control over people's lives breaking into their homes rummaging through all their belongings sexually assaulting the female victims and in the presence of their male companions and you know possessing them for hours at a time this person is in extreme need to be in control and when things do not go his way he can't handle it and another thing that is stuck out to me is that when he seemed to be under stress when things weren't going according to plan in one case in Visalia somebody followed him saw him and thought oh that's that might be the ransacker and they followed him 
he started mumbling to himself. And some, some of the victims in these cases, when he would be going through their homes, they would hear him mumbling to himself and talking to himself. And I thought this was a real characteristic. I, I didn't think this was part of his show to appear stronger and tougher than he was. I thought this was something that was really part of his personality and that people would know who knew him would recognize that. Yeah, he mumbles and talks to himself and curses to himself when he's under stress or not happy. But I thought that was probably a, a real characteristic, not something he was, you know, not an impression he was trying to leave on his victims. And, you know, it turned out, you know, some interviews that were done with people that knew him is that he he would behave that way when he, you know, things weren't going his way, so to speak. Finds Jody is a nonprofit run by volunteers with a mission of keeping Jody's unsolved case in the spotlight. Anyone with information about Jody's case can reach out to the Mason City Police Department. Information can also be provided to the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigations. You can also contact Find Jody anonymously if you prefer. Don't sit in silence. The time to talk is now. For the entire Finds Jody team, I'm Scott Fuller. Thank you for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.